You're listening to Veterans for Recovery, a podcast that unpacks all things recovery within our extended military family. Join your host, retired Major John Donovan, a noted author, lecturer, and person in long-term recovery from substance use disorder, as he and his guests will break down current trending topics and research, along with all things recovery related to increasing recovery resilience and recovery capital within our veteran and service member communities. Now here's your host, Major John Donovan. Good day, everybody. Major John Donovan here, and welcome to another podcast of Veterans for Recovery. Today, we have a guest who is a subject matter expert on the research of recovery. Peter Hubbard is joining us, and we're going to get into asking him some exciting questions about his journey in recovery and what's new in the research of recovery. This is a podcast that looks at all things pertaining to our veterans, service members, and their family members who are in recovery. Again, I'm John Donovan, the host of your podcast. I'm a person in long-term recovery, and every month I invite a new guest to come with me and explore the topic of recovery, what's new in recovery, and how these issues and topics can affect, impact, and pertain to our veteran community. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Major Donovan. Peter Hubbard, I, I too am a lo- person in long-term recovery, very grateful and honored and just feel privileged to be here with you today and for all of our listeners as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Peter. And as people know, I'm a proud grad of St. Cloud State University, but today we're going to be talking to an employee of the University of Minnesota. We have a little rivalry that uh, goes on in the area of hockey. Uh, not football, but hockey. And uh, we'll set that rivalry aside for now. Uh, the Gophers are pretty good at hockey. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that aside right now as yeah. we talk about the mutual topic that we have in common, which is recovery. But yes. before we get into your recovery journey, tell our listeners about your professional background. What kind of educational and work experiences brought you to the position that you have today? Sure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share that. So I grew up in California and came out to Minnesota for treatments as part of my recovery journey. And then I went to school at Augsburg University. It was Augsburg College at the time, but since has switched to Augsburg University and was in the step-up program there and was very proud to be a part of that program went into the profession of public accounting for uh, a number of years and quickly realized that was not a a career path that I wanted to sustain long-term. I found the joy in that profession was meeting with clients on the audit side when I was working in public accounting. And several years back, I had an opportunity to reevaluate what I wanted to do with my career and knew several members in the recovery community that were connected to the retreat in Wyzetta and was introduced to the leadership team there. And it just so happened that there was an opportunity to become the development director at the retreat at that time. And and incredibly grateful for my time that I spent there, which was about six years and was a wonderful part of my journey. And from there, I had the opportunity to join the University of Minnesota Foundation where I lead our neuro team 
neurosciences within medicine and health here at the foundation. And within that is one of our main priorities is mental health and addiction. And I have the fortunate opportunity to lead the philanthropic efforts for mental health and addiction here at the University of Minnesota. And that's just one piece of our neuro team. If you think of it this way, a neuro focuses on all things brain related. And that's where the research and the clinical piece related to mental health and addiction fall within my scope. Wow. That is an amazing background from California to recovery, from recovery to the retreat, and then from the retreat to the prestigious University of Minnesota. Let's take a look a little bit at your recovery journey. One of the things that we have in common is that we both came into recovery very young. I was 15 years old and you were in your late teens, if memory serves me. Uh, 17. 17. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What brought you to that alcoholic moment of clarity, that epiphany that you have a problem? And then what brought you to Minnesota for recovery? Absolutely. I'll I'll steal a line from you, John, that I too was born at a very early age and had a wonderful childhood. My parents are remarkable human beings and gave me any and all opportunities to just enjoy life and and experience things that otherwise I, I probably wouldn't have been able to. And so they just gave me a wonderful childhood. It was at about age 13, I started experimenting with weed and alcohol. And I, my life was surrounded by baseball and football. That's, that was basically my life. I was the typical kid from the suburbs that if it was football season, I would go to school, I would go to football practice. My dad would pick me up and we, he would pick me up and we would go to the batting cages and get ready for baseball season. And so that was my life and I loved it. So I had played around with substances at about 13 But it wasn't until 14 that I was introduced to Oxycontin, which was quickly my substance of choice. Opiates were a favorite of mine, but I was also the garbage can, as I describe it. I was addicted to the state of intoxication. It was anything I could get my hands on. And so my girlfriend at the time in high school, her older brother introduced us to Oxycontin. And at that time, we experimented with an 80 milligram tablet and between the two of us, a quarter of that tablet would would get us both high. And we told each other that we were only going to do it um, on the weekends. We weren't going to do it during school, before school, or anything like that. That quickly changed. The priorities uh, quickly shifted. At that time, an 80-milligram tablet of Oxycontin was $60 a pill. I didn't have a way to, to pay for that habit. And so I, I wrote checks for my dad's checking account and paid for my habit that way. And the decline was very quick. It wasn't long before that I was experimenting with cocaine and methamphetamines and ecstasy, basically anything I could get my hands on. I was in an environment in California where it was easier for me to get my hands on drugs than it was to get my hands on alcohol. Um, While there was plenty of alcohol, uh, it was really just um, a matter of what was going to make me allow me to escape and, and, and feel different. And um, I was never really able to put a pinpoint on, on why I wanted to feel different. I just knew that something about me was wired a little differently. So I basically went on what I called a, a two-year crash course, two to three-year crash course, where things got just progressively worse and worse. And I've had folks in the program approach me and ask, Peter, how could it have gotten so bad 
that at 17, you made the decision that it needed to, to come to an end. And I, I'm sure you can resonate with that, John, that it just, it really did get that bad. I had totaled every car that I had ever driven. I had been in the hospital multiple times, arrested, and life had just become so unmanageable and dangerous as well. The relationships were threatening my family and all sorts of things just got very ugly real quick. It was some series of events towards the end there that I won't dive into because it's not terribly beneficial, but I was able to exit my body at certain moments and look at myself and say, wow, this has really gotten to a point where this disease has taken control of you and you're not the Peter that you once knew. I was wearing a mask for a number of years. And finally, my, my parents um, at 17 realized what was going on. And no, no parent is ever prepared for what, for what happens when they realize that their son or daughter is an addict or an alcoholic. And they did the best that they could to, to help during this situation. And I initially told them that I was just doing painkillers and it was for football and sports quickly. My dad went online and checked his online banking and realized that close to $100,000 had been taken from him to support my habit over the years. And it was quickly realized that this was a bigger problem than we knew. And so they contacted a, a specialist, a chemical dependency specialist in Redwood City, California. And my mom and I went there one day. My dad was working. I think it was also difficult for him just to deal with the situation, but we went and met with this doctor and I was so numb to all of the uh, emotion because of the substances that I was taking. But my mom is sitting there just weeping and the doctor is telling her, your son's 17. If he continues what he's doing, he's going to die. He's not going to live to see 18 years old. And you're basically just putting band-aids on the problem. He will die. And again, I'm thinking, okay, what's the big deal? This can't be that serious. The doctor had mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous, and what I knew of Alcoholics Anonymous at that point was what I had seen in movies, folding chairs, coffee, dark basements. I, I didn't know the, the beauty of the community that could be embraced with Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I think I shrugged it off and said, oh, no, I'm not going to label myself as, a, as an alcoholic. That's ridiculous. And then he shared that there's this place in Minnesota that you can go to. It's called Hazelden. It's for young adults. So it was Hazelden Plymouth that I went to. And as we were leaving, my mom just stopped before we got in the car. And she said, what do you think? And again, I, it had gotten so bad that I just stopped and I said, let's do it. And so I was a very unique case. I want to say where I was an opiate addict. I was among other things. I was close to, to death several times, but I had reached a point in my life at 17 where I had consciously made the decision that it was time to go to treatment. Many of the folks that I was in treatment with, they were either court ordered or their parents had, had forced them to be there. And it was interesting when I was in treatment, that angered me because I, I was so motivated to, to turn my life around and, and to get this second chance at life that I wanted everyone else to feel that as well. While I was in treatment, one of my best friends to this day came and spoke about their experience with the Step Up program at Augsburg College. And I immediately got on the phone with my parents. And I said, you've got to research this Step Up program at Augsburg College. It's a community for students in recovery that uh, you don't have to choose between a life of recovery or a college education. You get to do both. And to me, that was beautiful. And it meant that I didn't have to go back to California and what would 
quite possibly result in my young death. And the one thing that I took away from, among others, from Hazelden Plymouth was you had to change your playgrounds, your playmates, and your playthings. And so I did that. I, I left California. I didn't, I cut ties with all of my friends or so-called friends, really just using buddies and, and got rid of the substances and committed to a life of abstinence. And so that's where I started my recovery journey. Uh, and Augsburg was fantastic. I will forever be grateful for the step up program and, and the experience I had there. I was in the program for all four years, had a chance to do some really incredible things and be part of the leadership team there. Also met my wife at Augsburg. She's a normie and she had her own experiences with loss and, and, and everything, but she was living in the same building as Step Up because at that time, if you were a student at Augsburg and you wanted to live in the building and not worry about partying and things like that, you could still live in that building and not be a part of Step Up. So we met there and we were engaged our junior year, got married a year after we graduated and six months into our marriage, Annie was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so life threw us a major curveball. And I was 23, she was 26, and we we had to we had to grow up real fast. And we yeah, it was tough. She went in. She has the BRCA gene in her family, and she went in for her very first mammogram. And I'll never forget, the doctor came and got me, and I walked into the doorway, and Annie was crying. And I just paused and I said, "Did they find something?" And she just looked at me with fear in her eyes and just said, "Yeah, they did." And we didn't know what to do. We were. We're still just kids, but we were even babies at that time. And so we did chemo, we did radiation, we did full bilateral mastectomy. And they prescribed any pain medication. They, they gave her all the good stuff, but I had to be the best nurse that I could for her. And I had to tell myself, listen, you're not 17 anymore. Your wife needs you and you need to lean into your support group your support system, and you need to be there for her. As much as it pained me and, and I wanted to just bury myself in, in pills and escape, that was not an option. And so we thankfully made it through all of that. And Annie's been in remission for 10 plus years now. And we were able to start a family and have our, our beautiful daughter, Zoe, who's a, just a blessing to us. And today I have my first daddy-daughter dance. So I get to look forward to that this evening. And to me, I don't want to miss a, a single second with my girls because I know how quickly that those things can be taken away from you. And it's it's a blessing as a result of my recovery. Everything I have in my life is a result of my recovery. I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't have the job that I have. I wouldn't have the life that I have without my recovery. So I feel extremely blessed. And so it's, yeah, it's been quite a journey. Yeah. Let me jump in here for a second. Yeah. And I want to arc back to the step up program because some of our listeners may not be familiar with that. My understanding of it, the collegiate recovery program, people who are in recovery can enroll in this program. And one of the first collegiate recovery programs in the nation. Yeah, it's really become the gold standard for other schools to model a program after. I would say, yeah, it was the first of its kind back in the 90s. It was formed and it's helped countless individuals and families and has done incredible things. So for some of our veterans who are in recovery and maybe going back to school for their GI Bill, 
one of the things that they want to take a look at is a school that is veteran friendly. Sometimes those are designated as beyond the yellow ribbon schools. But if they're in recovery, they might want to look for a beyond the yellow ribbon school that also has a collegiate recovery program. Absolutely. Yeah. And you and I also have a parallel in that both of our wives are cancer survivors. Your wife from breast cancer, my wife from uh, kidney cancer. And it was shocking, rocking to me because having served and served over in Iraq and two tours and breathing in the stuff that we breathed in with the burn pits and the other chemicals that were just present in the soil and the dust and the dirt. I always just thought that if anybody in our family was going to get sick, it was going to be me. And I had to get real, real tight with my recovery community like you did when you found out that your wife had cancer. And then I imagine being nursemaid and looking at the medications that she was taking potentially helping her with those medications, that could have been a trigger for you. And yet you came through it, maintaining your sobriety, maintaining your recovery. What was that like? And what was instrumental or pivotal for you, Dad? Yeah, it wasn't easy. That was a very difficult time for me. I should also mention that I have epilepsy and the neurologists that I see believe that it's stress-induced and also caused by sleep deprivation. And so the same week that Annie was diagnosed, I, I experienced having a seizure and it got progressively worse for the next several years until we were able to finally, knock on wood, get it under control. But the, the experience you go through and as a loved one, you're powerless to what your wife is experiencing because you just want to reach in and take it all away. You want to make it all better, but you can't. And all I could do was love her and be there for her when she was having a tough day and her hair was falling out, just be there for her. And I did my very best to take things off of her plate so that she wouldn't have to worry about me. So we learned early on in our marriage that we couldn't necessarily be each other's outlets. We needed that community of support. We needed those folks that we could go to, to be our outlets to talk to. And that way it alleviated some pressure from her that while she was going through this illness, she didn't have to worry about her husband, her best friend that was struggling. She knew that I was going to be okay because I had those outlets. I had those people that I could talk to. Yeah, that is so incredible. And uh, congratulations uh, to both of you. Thank you. On her recovery journey as a cancer survivor, your recovery journey, and and then through this all the blessing of your daughter and yeah. getting to go to your first daddy-daughter dance. How cool yeah. is that? It's pretty special. Yeah, she's she's got me wrapped around her finger as she should. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so cool. Hey, Peter, in the remaining time that we have, I'd like to unpackage a little bit then about some of this research that the University of Minnesota is doing in regard to addiction. Uh, Could you fill us in on that? Sure. Uh, So it's interesting. Throughout my life, throughout my career, I've been able to see the different resources that we have for folks in recovery. I've been exposed to a lot of them. At 17, I, I went to Hazelden, Plymouth. 
then on to Augsburg College Step Up Program as a student in recovery. And then I was fortunate enough to, to work at the retreat and see the incredible work that's being done there. And so I've seen all these different resources, and I will be the first to tell you that we will always need every single one of those resources. But it's not until I came to the University of Minnesota that I learned about the incredible research that's being done and the way they look at the disease of addiction as not just a as not a moral failing, but a biological failing. The University of Minnesota has some of the um, most advanced, the world's best imaging here on campus where we can look at the brain more closely and identify that this truly is a biological disease. It's a, it, our brains are wired a little differently. And so our research team is looking at adding more tools to the toolbox, so to speak. Annie and I talk about her breast cancer and she can't help being diagnosed with breast cancer any more than I can help being an addict. And the disease shouldn't be looked at any differently. Just the same way that she needed innovative treatments to help her combat her disease, we need innovative treatments to help with the disease of addiction. The disease has evolved over time and we need to evolve with it. And the medical discovery team on addiction at the University of Minnesota is a group of about 60 plus faculty that are all working on innovative and, and new technologies and, and ways of looking at this disease and helping to give us more tools in the toolbox. Because when I was working at the retreat, I saw folks that had been through 10, 20 plus treatment centers and still didn't get it. And that's, that's just part of the disease. But if we have another tool in the toolbox uh, that could possibly help them find a life of recovery and they can have joyous moments with their family where they can go to a daddy-daughter dance themselves, then who are we to say that, that they can't have that life? Again, I will emphasize that we will always need all of the resources and all of the tools in the toolbox but our researchers are looking at the next generation. What can we offer my daughter when she's a teenager? And hopefully she doesn't have to deal with this disease. But if she does, I know she'll be in good hands. Really well said. And I love that. You mentioned the program of Alcoholics Anonymous earlier. And Bill Wilson, in talking to an audience one time, said, Bill Wilson being co-founder of the program of AA, he said, one million people have come into the program of AA. And at that time, that was the estimated audience size membership of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, one million people have come into the program of AA, but 600,000 have come and left. Mm -hmm. What are we doing for the 600,000? Mm -hmm. And it's not just enough to say, hey, here's the one formula um, right. And if that doesn't work for you, then too bad. Yeah. We got to keep taking a look at different formulas. We got to keep taking a, a look at different fixes so that everybody has a chance at recovery. Absolutely. Can you tell us one or two of the innovative things that your research team has come up with or discovered? As long as is it not proprietary information. No, no, I'm be, happy uh, to get any secrets out of the bag. Yeah, I'm happy to share. One in particular that is very exciting, Jasmine Kamchong uh, and Kelvin Lim, part of our medical discovery team on addiction, they have developed a technology that provides neurostimulation. And I know what people might be thinking that neurostimulation is what they see in movies where it's electric shock therapy. That's not what this is. This is a, a headband that you essentially wear 
that it provides very gentle, um, almost tingling sensation. And you receive cognitive training through a Zoom link. So this technology can be implemented anywhere. It could be done from the comfort of your own couch. If you're in a more rural community and you're not able to get into a hospital setting and receive TMS therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation, you can use this technology. It's non-invasive, it's non-pharmacological, and again, it's very cost-effective and, and can be done remotely. And what they've been able to do by s- stimulating the decision-making area of your brain and by using cognitive training is they have shown through their data that 90% of the people that use this cognitive training and this neurostimulation remain abstinent. And they focus their, their study on folks that are one month outside of treatment. And we know that from our experience, that's that first month outside of treatment is the most vulnerable. And so it's pretty remarkable to see the progress that's been done um, with that work. And again, it's another tool in the toolbox. We're not advocating that this be a supplement for Alcoholics Anonymous. We're adding, or we're advocating that this just be another tool that folks can use in addition to your recovery program, your recovery community, going to those meetings, having a sponsor, whatever works for you. Because the ultimate goal that we all want to achieve is having more folks find a life in recovery. Said indeed, uh, long-term recovery with the goal being a productive, healthy, happy lifestyle. Absolutely. Uh, And we know that life is going to throw us curves. People are going to get sick in our lives. But if we can put somebody on the path of recovery with as many tools as possible to them to ensure their long-term recovery, then we have done a great thing. Peter, real quickly in the last minute that we have here, Tell folks how they can get in touch with your program, learn more about it, or even support it if they are so inclined. Absolutely. Folks can certainly reach out to me directly. I'm happy to provide my information. You can go to the University of Minnesota Medical Discovery Team on Addiction website. They have their own dedicated website that not only talks about Jasmine and Kelvin's project, but countless others. As I mentioned, we have 60 plus faculty that are all working on ideas that are just as exciting as Jasmine and Kelvin's. One in particular is helping with naloxone and folks with overdose. That's just one other example of folks working on projects that could save lives. I would encourage folks to visit the website. And if you are so inclined to support it with philanthropy, that really helps because most of these researchers, they receive grants through the NIH. But in order for them to get to that point where they can submit those grants, they need to collect their data first. And so the philanthropy piece that I am responsible for helps provide that bridge funding, that seed funding to get that project underway for a little while so they can collect that data and then submit that to the NIH, hopefully resulting in a multi-million dollar grant. Incredible stuff. And what an incredible guest we've had today, ladies and gentlemen, and Peter Hubbard. Peter is a person in long-term recovery and works with the philanthropic team at the University of, Menace, uh, University of Minnesota with the team that is studying addiction and coming up with some innovative approaches, techniques, and procedures to increase long-term recovery and maybe someday come up with a cure for alcoholism and addiction. 
Uh, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, I, I feel privileged uh, to, to be here today and uh, uh, keep doing the incredible work that you are doing. Uh, I just feel honored to be a part of it. So thank you so much for including me. Yeah, absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another podcast of Veterans for Recovery. This is Major John Donovan, your host. We thank you for joining us today. And this is Major Donovan signing off. You've been listening to Veterans for Recovery, a Coming Home Well podcast. We value your feedback. Please be sure to leave a review, share, and download this episode. We thank our veterans and service members for your service to our country. We thank our friends and families for their support. And thank you for listening to Veterans for Recovery.